This is a 720 to go podcast from Chicago's WGN Radio 720. This podcast is sponsored by ADM. As one of the world's largest agricultural processors, ADM is uniquely positioned to serve the world's growing needs for abundant food and renewable energy. ADM. When it comes to the business of America's farmland, you need the information from the people who know it best. That's why we bring you AgriCast with Orion Samuelson and Max Armstrong. Good morning again. Big O, Orion Samuelson with you for our weekly get-together on the Saturday morning show on WGN Radio. And I'm going to spend a little time responding to some emails today with questions that I'll try to answer because uh, it's a little bit confusing sometimes to uh, decide where you're going to be when, whether it's going to be Arizona or Huntley, Illinois. But uh, for the last three, four weeks, it's been Huntley, Illinois, and that led to an email from somebody saying, why do you leave Arizona to come back to the Midwest in the heart of winter? Well, the reason is we have furnaces in the Midwest when it's winter. We have air conditioning in the desert when it's summer. And so the indoor temperature isn't that much different or uncomfortable. And uh, really in Arizona, the weather is uh, getting nice. It's not warmed up as much as it normally does this time of the year. But I'm getting uh, emails from people who are heading to Arizona for spring training season because it's underway. We'll have baseball later today on WGN Radio for the first time this year. And uh, a lot of people from the Midwest coming to uh, Arizona to enjoy not only the weather, but to uh, watch baseball. And so every year about this time, I hear from a lot of people saying, You talk about your favorite restaurants in Arizona during, well, the entire year, but especially spring training season when a lot of them are coming in out here. So let me share with you uh, just two or three favorite restaurants that uh, people are always saying, I forgot or I lost the note that I wrote down, tell us again. And the first one I want to mention was a uh, restaurant that was recommended to me when I uh, started spending time out here back in the uh, 80s. And uh, the recommendation came from Ron Santo, Chicago Cubs. He, of course, had a home out here and uh, spent a lot of time here beyond spring training. But uh, a restaurant that uh, Ron Santo recommended to me that is still uh, here and uh, still one of my favorites. It's an Italian restaurant. It's called Tutti Santi, T-U-T-T-I-S-A-N-T-I, Tutti Santi. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona, pretty close to the main drag, Scottsdale Avenue. And a great Italian restaurant. Leo, the owner, along with his family, came to uh, the U.S. from Italy a long time ago and brought his mother's recipes with him and uh, continues to be one of the uh, stopping points for a lot of Midwesterners and uh, people from other parts of the country who do try to enjoy winter in Arizona. So write that down, T-U-T-T-I-S-A-N-T-I. 
my favorite outdoor patio restaurant in Scottsdale, actually in Paradise Valley, but it's in the Valley of the Sun, Phoenix area. And uh, my favorite far and away of the outdoor <clears throat> patio restaurants, Lons, L-O-N apostrophe S, at Hermosa Inn. It has probably, in my opinion, the most attractive outdoor eating area, and you can use it now at this time of the year, and it is great food. Uh, chef Jeremy Pacheco is a farm boy from Arizona who is the chef at Lons at Hermosa Inn. The uh, building itself has some history. It's uh, one of the few remaining Arizona territorial houses, which uh, was living quarters for a noted Western artist who painted many uh, versions of Arizona and the desert, and that was his home. And uh, he has since passed, but it's now a great restaurant, indoors and outdoors. So if it does happen to rain a drop or two, or if the temperature is a little bit on the cool side, it's uh, still comfortable. And uh, to be outdoors eating in the evening when you have a full desert moon, absolutely gorgeous. So I would highly recommend that. And, uh, oh, and if you're going to go there, just ask for Andrew, because Andrew is the maitre d' who's been there forever. And then just mention my name, and he won't throw anything at you or throw you out, but uh, he'll treat you very well. So uh, I put that one down. Of course, when it comes to uh, Mexican Southwest cuisine, dozens of restaurants in the valley that do that and uh, one of our current favorites is jalapeno inferno uh, which is also in the scottsdale area and uh, that's just three that i've mentioned of a hundred or so maybe more as a matter of fact it's always interesting to me when i come back after the winter to see uh, how or when we come back here at the beginning of winter. It's always interesting to me to see how many restaurants did not survive because if they don't make their money during the winter tourist season uh, and put some of it away, they probably won't be here for the next season. So come on out uh, to Arizona and uh, enjoy it. We'll be heading back out in March. And uh, yes, and why do I come back in the wintertime? Well, because we have furnaces here. So, you know, temperature-wise, we're indoors and we can enjoy uh, both parts of the country, the Midwest, which of course is home, and the second home, which is Arizona. The other word of advice I give you, don't go to a restaurant without reservations. This time of the year, restaurants can are packed. And with spring training underway now, more packed than ever. And so don't go out to eat at a nice restaurant without a reservation. Because you'll either get turned away reluctantly or you'll have a long wait. So that's my dining guide for the desert and for spring training season. So uh, we'll be back out here the uh, in Arizona the middle of March. A lot of other things to talk about, too. Uh, as a matter of fact, you heard some of it earlier, but uh, 
We now have to give a daily scorecard on coronavirus. And the headline that greeted me this morning, China reports 397 new confirmed cases of coronavirus on the mainland yesterday. And China reports 109 new deaths on mainland China yesterday. China's total number of confirmed coronavirus cases on mainland hits 76,288 as of the end of the day yesterday. China's total number of coronavirus deaths on the mainland is now 2,345 as of yesterday. And Hubei province, that's the epicenter of coronavirus, reports 366 new cases yesterday. And Hubei province, the epicenter of the outbreak, reports 106 new deaths as of yesterday. But as I've said before, with the ease of travel on the planet today, difficult to keep a disease that's uh, this difficult, uh, concerned in just one area, because you can travel all over the world within 24 hours, and if you are uh, infected with the disease, it can be spread. So... That's uh, another one of those uncertainties that markets don't like because we don't really know how much financial impact it will have on industry. We do know what it's having on tourism, and we do know the impact that it will have on many other industries, particularly those that uh, require input from factories in mainland China. And having been in China 10 times over the past three decades, first went to China in 1976, it's easy to see why a disease, whether it's African swine fever in hogs, whether it's coronavirus in people, it's easy to see why it can spread so quickly and not be detected as early as it should be, because You have these little farms. They do have collective farms and did on my first visit to China in 1976. But just about every home that has some outdoor space will have a chicken flock in the backyard or a hog herd in the backyard, but small numbers, seven, eight, nine, ten hogs. And that's why it's difficult to get to those places and put a stop or at least... uh, begin to hinder the move of the contagious diseases. So we're going to live with that for quite a while, and we're going to have to watch it for quite a while. And then, as I've said many times, the one thing that markets, whether it's equity markets or agricultural markets, do not like, it's uncertainty. And that just builds all kinds of ideas into the economy and what we can expect because of all that's taking place. 21 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show, and uh, we'll be back to talk about some deadlines coming up the end of February when we continue here on the Saturday morning show. We're at 24 minutes after 5 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. 
And uh, coming up on February 28th, there is a deadline. We've talked a great deal over the past two or, well, one or two decades about the Conservation Reserve Program. They do have a sign-up period in case you want to get involved in that, but the deadline for signing up is February 28th. That The Department of Agriculture wants to remind you that if you're interested in the Conservation Reserve Program for 2020 general sign-up, you have to enroll by February 28th. Sign-up available to farmers and private landowners who are either enrolling for the first time or re-enrolling for another 10- to 15-year term. And uh, the USDA says it's the first opportunity for general sign-up since 2016, and farmers and ranchers who enroll in CRP receive yearly rental payments for voluntarily establishing long-term resource-conserving plant species, such as approved grasses or trees, known as covers, which can control soil erosion by water or wind, improve water quality, and develop wildlife habitat as marginally productive agricultural lands. CRP has 22 million acres enrolled, but the 2018 Farm Bill lifted the cap to 27 million acres. So if Conservation Reserve Program is something that you have regretted not enrolling in or are missing, again, February 28th is the deadline. And you can go to your Farm Service Agency County office to get all the information and the necessary application forms to sign up for the Conservation Reserve Program. It's been a very successful program that has done a great deal, particularly to cut erosion by wind in the wintertime or by rain or flooding in the southern uh, summertime. Speaking of uh, weather and how different it can be, in uh, South America right now, the situation for the soybean producers in Brazil and Argentina, intense rains in parts of Brazil have limited the advance of the soybean harvest over the past few days, also delaying exports of the oil seed. The country's soybean harvest had reached 34% of the planted area as of yesterday. That's an advance in the past week of nearly 7% harvested. But uh, while the pace of harvesting is in line with a historical average, it's below last year's level of 46% when producers were able to plant earlier because of favorable weather. So it's not just North America or U.S. farmers that are get impacted by flooding rains or dry weather or you got to look to South America where it's uh, growing time while we're getting ready to start the growing season here in North America. But the uh, farmers in Brazil are having challenges and problems getting the crop harvested. Oh, one other note. Today marks the beginning of National FFA Week. Future Farmers of America, or 
father farms alone, as some people used to terminate it, but uh, or term it, and so National FFA Week. This was started, I think, in 1948 in recognition of the outstanding training program for young people in agriculture in uh, the National FFA and in the local FFA chapters. So I'm guessing there will be special FFA banquets and programs that will be taking place uh, in this coming week. FFA week starts today, and it'll conclude a week from today on the last day of February this year. So uh, take time to uh, salute the FFA members in your community for everything that they do. I'm a product of FFA and a product of 4-H, so I know what it did for me, and I know what it can do for young people even more so today. Saturday morning show here on WGN Radio Chicago, and there's more to come here on the Saturday morning show. It's 5.30, and it looks like a pretty good weekend in the Midwest. Temperatures getting up near the 50-degree mark tomorrow. Not bad. We'll enjoy it, and we'll take it. Right now, it's time for Samuelson Says. I'm Orion, and this week talking about something that probably will never happen. Despite the fact I discuss this subject every four years, nothing ever changes, and I don't expect it will this year. But I will keep trying, and maybe one of these years, change will happen. I'm talking about a limit on the time allowed to campaign for public office, as well as a limit on the amount of money a candidate can spend to gain the votes to win the public office. And for starters, how about six months of campaign time and a $100 million cap on campaign spending? Now, there are some countries that limit campaign time to six months ahead of the general election, but here it seems we start seeing the TV ads two years ahead of the next presidential election day, and they basically tell me over and over again how great I am and how bad all my opponents are. In a year like this, with as many candidates, the amount of money being spent is astounding. One candidate spending as much as $400 million to win the nomination. Now think for a moment how many hungry people could be fed, how many people could get needed health care, how many people could get a proper education, and on and on and on. But our system doesn't work that way, so I understand It will never happen. Media companies, of course, really wouldn't like it because they would lose a great deal of revenue. And people like me maybe would be out of a job. But at least we could quit saying the winner bought the presidency. I know it will never happen, just like term limits for elected officials, but I can still dream about it and think about the day when... I would no longer have to watch the endless TV commercials insisting this candidate is the one to solve all our problems and all the world problems. I'd be interested in your thoughts 
And these are my thoughts on Samuelson Says, a presentation of Nexstar Media Group. 26 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday morning show. And before we end the program today, Max Armstrong will sit down with Greg Grove of Archer Financial Services and uh, we'll talk agricultural markets in addition to the equity markets all being impacted by coronavirus. More to come here on the Saturday Morning Show. 23 minutes before 6 o'clock here on the Saturday Morning Show. And a surprising report yesterday in light of all of the challenges we've had with agricultural trade agreements and with viruses and diseases and everything else uh, impacting our food supply. But we did get a bright report yesterday from Deer and Company, and their shares climbed sharply to their highest level in at least five years after the company reported an unexpected increase in first quarter profit and retained its full-year earnings forecast as signs of stabilization in the farm sector offset weak demand for construction machines. And after gaining nearly 10% in the morning trade, the world's largest farm equipment maker uh, still maintained that strong earnings report reaction yesterday. Deere's earnings in the past quarters were buffeted by a nearly two-year-long U.S.-China trade war that hit agricultural exports leaving farmers struggling to turn a profit. That's why the strong report from Deere & Company yesterday, in spite of all of the talk of the impact that the world economy was having on U.S. agriculture, came as quite a surprise. But one thing to note, sales at Deere's farm and turf business, which accounts for nearly 60% of its revenue, declined in the latest quarter, but higher price realization along with lower production costs and warranty expenses resulted in higher operating profit. And it's expected an improvement in market conditions in the United States and Canada, which is the company's biggest market, despite forecasts for lower industry sales of farm machines in the region uh, this past year. But uh, part of the uh, business that has grown a great deal for Deer and Company is the lawn and garden business, the lawn tractors. And uh, the interest in the buying of those products has also helped companies like Deer and Company and, of course, other farm equipment manufacturing companies that have seen the downturn that has certainly impacted uh, their financial sheet over the past uh, probably 10 years or so. But it's good to get some good news from a farm equipment company that uh, is more positive than a lot of people were expecting. 20 minutes before 6 o'clock and uh, standing by in the studio, Max Armstrong with his market guest this morning. Good morning, Max. He's a regular guest for us from Archer Financial Services, Greg Grobe, but it's been a while. I guess this is the first time this year, isn't it? First time this year, Max. We continue to watch uh, how a very wet crop is being handled out there by producers, and we continue to be concerned about uh, challenges with grain bin entrapments. And so it's a reminder of a very 
tough harvest, and for some, it isn't over yet, is That's it? That's true. Up in North Dakota, there's still quite a bit of corn waiting to come in, and we'll see if they get a chance here in April. What do you make of the condition of uh, of this corn, and how much of it is going to be used? In other words, let, let me come back and circle that another direction. Is it likely simply because of uh, the dry down of the test weight that we might wind up using more than USDA has been estimating. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm certain that, you know, some of that could play in a little bit, but we've uh, we've got plenty of corn. Our ending stocks are, are large, despite some of this corn still being held in the fields. Uh, the demand side of the equation, as you know, has been weak, and uh, especially the export side. So uh, there'll be plenty of corn to go around appears this spring. The big demand question is, what is China going to do? And nobody really has the answer to that. They don't no, perhaps do they simply because of the coronavirus and uh, the way it has uh, decimated demand within the country? Well, they've taken some extremely strident steps to try and contain this and keep it from becoming a, a global pandemic. Uh, it has certainly had a, a negative impact on their economy uh, near term. Uh, if the thing starts to abate a little bit, certainly there'll be some restocking, but it has certainly taken an edge off their economy and slowed their growth and thereby diminished uh, general demand for all commodities heading into China. What's a gut feeling here? Is it that this thing will run its course by mid-year and then the demand will will come roaring back? Is anybody that optimistic? Well, I don't think that the roaring part of it's going to be all that uh, prevalent for us. Demand uh, should come back, but, uh, you know, the the aspect of uh, velocity and how much demand is going to be there, it's a real question mark. The Phase 1 trade agreement that was signed uh, early in the year uh, provided some optimism and some certainty, uh, along with the the trade agreement between Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., but uh, uh, demand has remained soft. Global demand, global economic uh, uh, growth seems to be uh, slowed, uh, especially in Europe and and areas, and now we see this uh, change that's occurring in, in Asia in the impact, and it it certainly calls into question what kind of demand uh, prospects we're going to have this year. Is it going to make the tail... Uh, longer for this trade war? In other words, will the ramifications persist longer than they might have otherwise? Well, I think it calls into question whether or not uh, China will be able to make its obligations on a phase one agreement. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, we saw a lot of optimism originally as this thing started to get signed, but we haven't seen the business. And uh, uh, certainly that's going to be watched uh, very closely here. Is there anything anywhere else in the world in terms of global demand that offers us a significant promise to take up some of the slack? Well, I think that's going to be the question because global supplies remain historically large. South America is coming into a very big crop, it appears, especially in Brazil. Soybean yields, from what I've heard, are, are, are a record in many cases. Looks like a big crop there. Uh, this is going to be our big competitor as we go into the new crop year. There's Safrinia corn crop. Will it be large also? It appears. Uh, there were some concerns that maybe some wet weather slowing harvest would uh, maybe impede the uh, second corn crop, but uh, estimates that I've seen still look pretty strong right now, and harvest, despite some of the rain, has moved along, and it, it really tells you a little bit about the infrastructure improvements that we've seen in, in Brazil in the last few years, and the ability to get the crop uh, out of the field and into a truck and off to the ports has uh, vastly improved. They've really gotten their act together, haven't they, in sure terms have. of improving roads? I mean, it wasn't too many years ago we saw these photographs in the social media of miles and miles of trucks on muddy roads, and there probably still are some of those. But when it comes to the major highways uh, to move the crop to ports, they've made some significant improvements. Well, certainly that's the case, and certainly there will still be bottlenecks in certain areas. But along with the infrastructure improvements you mentioned on the roads, also in the ports, the ability to get ships loaded and on their way has greatly 
greatly improved in the last few years. And they're going to be a very strong competitor for us and have been. You mentioned wet weather down there and the, the conjecture about wet weather. Let's, uh, let's look here close to home. We have saturated soils. We have uh, predictions of flooding again this year. And, and some people are wondering, could it be a repeat of what we saw in the spring of 2019? What is your feeling about how we're looking right now? There are some forecasts that look for kind of a cool, wet start to things, but I'm watching the California region start to dry out. A lot of these uh, dry periods kind of start from the west. Uh, certainly the southeast has had a lot of moisture here recently. Uh, it depends a little bit on how this uh, phenomenon, this La Nina situation starts to build. Right now it looks very benign or mod modest in its scope, but some private forecasts are suggesting that this could become more of an item as we get through spring and could provide a a little bit of a warmer and drier western corn belt this year. We'll see. Well, farmers will waste no time when they have the opportunity to plant uh, with the history of of what happened last year. Will many of them, in your opinion, be going in with soybeans first? As Some have started to do that. You know, in the eastern Corn Belt, I don't know if we'll see that, but in the areas where the large corn acres exist and have been growing in the recent years, certainly, uh, you know, that's an interesting question. I I don't really have a good answer for that, but I know that farmers are gearing up with more equipment and better equipment and larger equipment with the knowledge that these last few spring have been very hard, uh, and the the aspect of getting going fast and and uh, being able to utilize what weather windows they have available to them. What kind of acreage numbers are you thinking about? We've heard, heard a lot of people talking about a 94 million acre corn planting figure. Well, I think the USDA Outlook Forum uh, suggested 94. I've heard uh, numbers in the 94 to 95 area, and I would certainly kind of go along that base right uh, with that kind of a number right now. What does that suggest on soybeans then? Oh, something in the area of 84, 85, uh, kind of in line with uh, what the Outlook Conference kind of came up with this week. And uh, that's going to be our problem with big South American crops and a surge back in acres here, uh, big yields again. If we return to trend line or above yields, uh, ending stocks are set to go up again, and that's going to be a bit of a problem. How sensitive will the trade be to any planting delays and rains and at the possibly uh, throwing off that normal planting schedule? And I ask you this because we still... After all was said and done, and all of the challenges and all of the stuff thrown at farmers last year, wound up with plenty of corn and soybeans. Well, I think that's the key takeaway. I, I mean, you it, know, will that take the emotion out of the market at planting time? I think last year's uh, experience is an interesting example to reflect on, and we had a lot of concern, a lot of uh, hand wringing as we went into late May and early June, and uh, we ended up getting a lot more of it in the ground than people thought we would, and, and yields came in much stronger in these impacted areas than people thought they would. So it appears that we have the ability to to do what we have to do given weather uh, difficulties. Uh, I was fascinated with some of the yields we we found last fall uh, in the eastern Corn Belt. Uh, crops that hadn't been planted till the end of the first week of June. Uh, ended up doing a lot better than people thought. Exactly. We know the agriculture markets do not operate in a vacuum. They are affected by what is going on quite often outside, and the strength of the dollar has been a factor. Just going back to uh, export demand, that has hurt, has it And that's not? going to be problematic. It's going to hurt our ability to regain market share if the dollar remains uh, strong. And the reasons for the dollar strength are very clear. You've had uh, events here since the first of the year in the Asian, uh, the outbreak of this uh, 
uh, coronavirus that has prompted a, a bit of a move back to safe havens, and the dollar certainly benefits from that experience. And we you contrast that to the end of the year. There was a lot of thought that the dollar was beginning to weaken, which would help us in market share and our ability to be competitive. And, you know, it's just amazing how these events can change and how quickly they change and the impact that they can have. Good to talk to you, as always, and thank you for coming in again. We appreciate it. Thank you, Max. Greg Grove with Archer Financial Services. Here on the Saturday morning show at 11 minutes before 6 o'clock. And a series of meetings coming up before the end of the month that I want to talk briefly about. The uh, statistic from the Illinois Farm Bureau that says 70% of U.S. farmland will likely change hands during the next two decades. And with estimates as high as half of American farmers operating without an estate plan, Illinois Farm Bureau and Country Financial are going to provide some valuable farm legacy seminars uh, to help them as plans are made for the next generation. And these events will take place next week. The two organizations will host three farm legacy information meetings in February before the month ends. Seminars will provide current and prospective IFB members and country financial clients with tools, protection, and ongoing support that's really essential to legacy planning in order to allow them to keep their farm and the family amid today's financial challenges. I remember attending a meeting probably uh, uh, two or three years ago, or even more than that, talking about estate planning. And when we asked the group of farmers in the room before we started the discussion, how many of you have an estate plan? I think less than half of the people in the room raised their hands. But now the two organizations will be hosting the three Farm Legacy Information Meetings. February 25, Hickory Grove Banquet and Conference Center in Rochelle. February 26, I Hotel and Conference Center in Champaign. And February 27th, Cocopelli Golf Club in Marion, Illinois. Those will be the locations for the meeting and something that I know you'll enjoy. A keynote presentation at each of the meetings by Dr. Ron Hansen, Professor Emeritus at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And uh, boy, over the years, I've had the opportunity to appear on programs with Ron Hansen to discuss the subject. And I tell you, you'll come away with a lot of valuable information if you're able to sit in on one of these sessions, February 25, 26, and 27. And uh, matter of fact, we'll have Dr. Ron Hansen on our program next Saturday morning. So uh, we'll hear some of what he is going to say this coming week on our broadcast a week from now. And uh, I don't know if uh, this will be on his agenda, but a headline on Reuters this week, lab-grown meat. Dutch startup keeps pork on your plate without wrecking the planet, is the headline from Reuters. And a Dutch startup 
may have found a workaround for eco-conscious consumers struggling to give up meat. Pork grown in a laboratory that doesn't harm animals or damage the planet. And I'm not quite sure how pork production damages the planet, but I guess some people think. But a company called Meatable, Meatable, will this summer unveil the first pork prototype made entirely from cultured animal cells instead of from processed animals. According to the CEO of the company, which incidentally raised about $10 million in seed funding in December from investors basically in Europe and the European Commission, but it will unveil this summer its first prototype made entirely from cultured animal cells instead of from slaughtered animals, according to the CEO. And uh, they say that uh, companies from America, Europe, and Israel racing to develop environmentally friendly, clean meat, now they're going to take it a step further. Meatables pork does not use or does not use animal serum. That's a fluid developed from animal blood. So another challenge to the livestock industry, which is huge in this country. We did get a cattle on feed report yesterday, and let me quickly cover the highlights. Reported by USDA, the number of cattle and calves on feed during the on February first, a hundred two million three hundred thousand. That was a gain of two percent over a year ago. The number of cattle placed on feed in January up one and a half percent. And the number of cattle marketed in January up 1% from a year ago. A market analyst, Chris Lehrer, made this comment. Placements at 1.5% below estimates make a friendly report, especially since market was down two days before the report was issued this week. April dropped to support Friday and then closed above it. But being down before the report, with a friendly report, should be at least $1.50 a hundredweight higher to maybe even higher when the market opens up on Monday. We'll check uh, where the market's closed this week when we continue here on the Saturday Morning Show. Before we get to the news, a quick look at where we ended the trade yesterday in livestock and in grain futures. Not a good day in the grain market. As a matter of fact, pretty much a red screen there for me. And also, livestock futures traded lower for the day. But uh, taking a look at the grain market, uh, the corn, soybeans, and wheat all fell with the three commodities facing pressure after trading higher early in the session. But at the end of the day, March wheat down eight cents a bushel, March corn down two cents a bushel, March soybeans down five cents a bushel. Livestock futures yesterday, hog futures ended higher on a mild technical bounce. Cattle contracts, however, weakened. And at the end of the trading day, the lean hog contract also lower, barely down a nickel, a hundredweight in the June contract. The um, 
April feeder or April cattle contract down a dollar seven cents a hundred weight yesterday, and the April feeder cattle contract ended the day and the week down eighty cents a hundred weight. Well, as always, thank you very much for joining us here on Saturday morning to talk about the most basic industry on the planet, producing food and fiber for you and me. My thanks to Bob Ferguson, who did the engineering work very well, as he always does. And again, thanks to you for joining me on the Saturday Morning Show. Orion Samuelson keeps you connected to the world of business and agriculture on WGN. Hear his reports weekday mornings on the Steve Cochran Show and during the noon hour on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Plus, catch Orion and Max on Saturday mornings at 5 a.m. only on Chicago's WGN Radio 720.